So remain uh, standing with the authority of God's Word. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 3. Your worship guide says 1 through 22. We're going to uh, end actually in verse 14. So this is the Word of God according to Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate begin, uh, being the governor of Judea, the Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Iturdia and Trachonodius and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all of the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are author uh, authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he answered to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. And then we all say. Amen and amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So this is um, a part of our series that we called, oof. Uh, that we called um, realia of food and drink. So today we're going to see this, this idea of the food of, of good fruit, right? If you understand fruit, it comes from a good tree and a good tree bears good fruit. So that means that it needs to have really good roots and soil and probably a good trunk. Probably needs to be watered well and pruned well so that at the end of the growing season that there is good fruit that is produced by this good tree. What John is telling us today is that the good fruit that we need to bear is the good fruit of repentance. And so that's where we're going, is for you and I to understand what repentance truly is. If you've been around Christian circles quite a bit, you've, you've heard this word, but you may not understand it. It's very simply to turn around. 
It's a word of 180. That means to go one way and to then turn back and to go another way entirely. That's what repentance is. And so part of our good fruit, the, the fruit that we're supposed to bear, is this idea that you and I need to be people of repentance. And so that's what we're going to go. So you've got your Bibles. You may have a booklet. We've given away lots of uh, uh, booklets here. So you can write in there. You've got an outline in your worship guide. We're ready to go. So before we jump into this, our, our, um, our text, let me tell you a story of something that happened this week in 1709. I didn't know it. You didn't either. However, so that's why you read so that you can educate yourself. But in 1709, there was a guy named Alexander Salkirk. He was a good Scottish man. He was on, he was Scottish, but he was actually on a British boat and he got into a fight with the British captain. Well, like an all good Scotsman, he had a little bit of a temper. He said things that he didn't really enjoy or want to be held accountable for. But he was looking at just the, the state of the ship. It was worm-eaten, it was rotten, it was a death trap, he said. So he looks at the British captain and he says, I would rather live there than stay on this ship. And when he pointed, he pointed to a desolate island. Well, the, uh, the British captain, he was only 21, right? He didn't like to be talked that way. And so what did he do? He steered the ship, drove to the island, Mr. Alexander, got exactly what he wished for and enjoyed a desert island. Four years later, another ship shows up on this island and out wanders Alexander Salkirk. And there he'd been for four years, wild, rugged, smelly. We're about to have uh, 30 plus youth come back into our service, right? The guys haven't had access to a um, bath. So if you get a waft of middle school air in a minute, just know that's, that's Alexander or the middle schoolers that are about to, about to show up. So four years later, they find him alive and well. It was so famous in the 1700s, and it was a story that was so robust that Robinson Crusoe actually mimicked his story from this real-time story. So this is the guy He's just wild and rugged and unpredictable. And that reminded me of this, the character that we're studying today. His name is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He too was just something. We get a lot in this passage, but we get more from other passages to understand exactly who this man was, wild and rugged. All right, so who exactly was John? We know that he was just a little bit odd. Right? So in this passage, in verses 2 and 4, you hear that he is living and preaching his itinerant ministry in the wilderness. And so this is where he is. He's not at the temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness. He's on the cusp of society. Luke and other places tells us that he has a diet that's a little wild, that he's got clothing that's a little wild. He's got a message that's a little wild. John the Baptist was a little, just, he was odd. He was hard to look at. He dressed in camel skins and leather straps. He ate from honeybees and other locusts and grasshoppers. And you go on and on and on about this guy. He belonged in the wilderness. He was truly eccentric. So wild clothing, wild living, but he was known for his message. And so this is just a depiction of him. 
This guy was just as rugged as him, bare bones, almost nothing. However, he had passion. And so when the sculptor in the 1800s did this, he wanted to make sure that his finger and his, he was leaning forward because yes, he was wild. And yes, he was unpredictable, but he was a man of passion. He was a man of forward thinking, and he was a man who truly had something to say because he was a preacher of God's word. So John was a little odd, for sure, but he was not seeker sensitive. You may not know what this word means or what this phrase means, but in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, the church culture, they became what was called seeker sensitive, meaning that they, they pivoted their entire services to include or to think about outsiders. Now, on the, on the, just the, the, the page, it, it sounds great, right, to make room for outsiders in a place like this. However, what happened is that we began to cater to people who are far from Jesus and, and walked away from things like preaching the word of God. And so preachers would then teach like five ways to help your marriage or three ways to help communication rather than just walking through the scriptures verse by verse or things like that. They would, we'd started to see the communion tables walk away because it made people feel uncomfortable. Well, John didn't know this phrase, seeker sensitive, but this guy was not it. He was not secret sensitive at all. In fact, he was bold and he was courageous and he was strong. And all he did was preach out loud. He was more of your 50s and 60s kind of preacher. You know, the guy who turned real red, who had veins that popped out of his, his, his neck and would point like this, right? And he would look at you and be like, you are going to hell or something like that. And you would just like be taken back and everybody was like shaking and fearful and those types of things. This is more John, is that he would get in your face because he loved his audience. And it looked aggressive. It looked like he was being a jerk. He looked like he was name calling, but he cared too much for the eternity of your souls to not to tell you the truth. And so here we have him, sure he was odd, but he came with the truth. We found, find him in his eccentric ways in the wilderness. But where strategically is the wilderness? It's apart from society. You don't find him at the temple, even though he's a Levite. You don't find him in Jerusalem, even though that's really where the sons of Aaron belong. You find him in the wilderness because Luke is trying to tell us something that's going on. Most of God's words, right, came from places that you would predict it. This is something brand new. John, if you remember in the first couple of chapters in Luke, is the forerunner of Jesus. You actually hear more uh, or earlier on about John before you hear about Jesus. The angel comes to uh, his, his mother Elizabeth before he comes to Mary. And in the same way of the birth announcement you hear about John before you Jesus, in the same way here before the public ministry of Jesus, who do you find? You find John the Baptist here in the wilderness. This is a place that's dry. It's a place that's arid. It's remote from everywhere. This is not a place that you would find a significant word of God or especially of movement of God. And yet this is what you find. 
what Luke is trying to do by putting him in the wilderness and telling us that he was a step away from society is to tell us exactly what Luke is going to tell us over and over and over is that there is a place for people on the outside. That outsiders actually have a place at the table. That when you break from tradition and you walk toward the fringes, oftentimes that's where you will hear, hear from the Lord. So not only is he odd and seeker sensitive, but he is exactly opposite, or there's a contrast here with the seats of power. If you look at verses one and two, there's a bunch of people that you've never heard of and words that you, you or I can't pronounce very well. But what is Luke trying to tell us in these first couple of verses is the fact that who John is is the very opposite or a contrast of the people and the places of power. What you have in this intro introduction in these first couple of verses are seven people of power, both Roman power and Jewish power, people that are supposed to sit on thrones who, or to wear crowns or to visit white houses or to be in the governor's mansions or to sit on board meetings or to like sit at the head of tables. Whoever these people are, you know that they are important. And you don't need to know any more than that other than they are seating at the very pinnacle of power in the first century world. So yes, John is odd. Yes, he's in the wilderness. But he's coming to you and I this morning to make sure that you and I know that the, that the world or the kingdom that John is preaching against is totally different or opposed to the nature or the character that we see around us. It's a contrast of, will, of prestige. This idea of wilderness or power, he comes and he pushes. Here's what you and I should know about these rulers is that all of their end end with shame. All of their power was taken from them. There was bite, backbiting and family infighting. And you and I have quickly forgotten their names or their roles in the first century. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about John the Baptist. You see, his kingdom was totally different, wasn't it? Those names have vanquished we don't even use those names anymore. Yet John the Baptist, his, his life and his legacy, it continues on. And so what does he do? Where does he start? What is exactly is his mode or what is, what is he able to give to the world? Well, here you have just in, just really quickly is that you have these high priests and the tetrarchs and you have all of these places but then at the end of verse 2, look at this. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, what happens? The word of God came to John. Again, it's an introductory paragraph. However, if we miss that phrase, you miss the point of John, and you may even miss the entire message of Luke entirely. Yes, these men are sitting in seats of power. But what John has, filled with the Holy Spirit, are simply words. That's all he's got. He's got no strength. He's got no position. He's got no power. Barely has a name. But what he has 
is the word of God. And what do we believe about the word of God? We believe that it's supernatural. We believe it's the very words of God. We believe it is what is going to change us forever. And this is what he's able to do because that's what John is. He's a preacher. He's a voice in the wilderness crying out. That's what he does. He simply proclaims to us what we do not want to hear. All of us get our attention moving toward the places of power and prestige and things that are looking wonderful. When here we have an odd man dressed in an odd place, only using the words of God. He was simply a preacher. Here we have him simply telling you and I that we need to repent. That's his word. You and I need to repent. We need to turn from something and turn another way. We need to do a 180. We're going in this way and we need to go another way. We're heading toward a broad path and yet there's a narrow path that we need to go. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and forsake the kingdoms of the world, the flesh and the devil. All of these examples are true and yet this is what what Luke is telling us in this introduction. That by giving us a list of men and giving us a wild example He's telling us exactly how you and I can repent. Because you and I often, today, we look toward power, don't we? We look toward prestige, don't we? We look toward regions and titles, places of honor. And here we have the place that we are to pivot, to turn a 180 and walk toward, is the simple but powerful word of God. In those days, it did not fall on deaf ears. At the end of our passage, you hear an entire people stand up and go, what should I do? Tell us, just tell us, John, tell us what we should do. Today, it shouldn't fall on deaf ears this morning either. Maybe you came because you too, like me, are stubborn and you're stuck in your ways and you're prideful. And maybe you need to hear the hard preaching that the, the motion of the Christian life is this idea of repentance. Really the only muscle that we have, that we breathe at the very moment or conception of salvation itself, is this idea of repent and believe. Repent and believe, that's our only movement. And that's what we get to do today as well, is just this idea that you and I need to flex this muscle of repentance over and over and over. So he was a preacher, right? But what did he preach? He preached repentance. What is this word? What exactly do we mean when we, when John comes to you and I and he says, you need to repent. And he starts dropping names like you slithering snake. Don't you know that you're heading in this this direction? You've got to turn your life around. What does it mean to repent? It simply means to go another direction. It's another term for 180. It means that you're going in the wrong direction. Something comes to your attention and you turn around and go the exact opposite direction. I know it's simple, right? However, you need to understand that there's like this inward transformation, like something that happens internally, first and foremost, so that something sparks in you 
so that you forsake your flesh, you forsake the devil, you forsake the world, and you head toward another direction altogether in what I'm calling kingdom obedience. And sure, it starts inwardly, right? It starts deep into your heart, and yet it is expressed outwardly. And this is what repentance simply is, is this idea that the kingdom of God, the word of God has captured your attention in such a way that you will forsake everything that comes natural to you in order for you to turn and enjoy and encompass, encompass the kingdom of God. So for you and I, we look to John and we see him in the wilderness and we understand that he's talking to us saying, you must repent. I wonder if you and I spend enough time considering what we do wrong rather than what we should be doing right. At the moment of our salvation, you had to come to a humility, a place of denial. Before you could believe anything, you actually had to believe the opposite and you had to say there's something wrong with me. This is a hard teaching because in the year 2022, everybody wants to be pat on the back to say that you're fully accepted, right? That you have a home, right? But somehow, what John's, the, what piqued everybody's ear and heart was a more harsh message of that your heart is actually in danger because you believe in yourself too much. The only person you believe in is yourself. When in fact, the kingdom of God is abandoning yourself, death to self, right? So that Christ can live in us and he cares too much for us only to pat us on the back. And so he gets into our face and he tells us that there's inward transformation that should move toward kingdom obedience. It's not a seat that you're able to see. It's not just a reign that will be in history books. It's inward in your heart. And there needs to be an alignment there. John says that God wants to address our spiritual condition deep in our heart before anything else. And that initiative is for you and I to repent, to stop, to go another direction. Do we talk to our brothers and sisters like this? Do we talk to ourselves like this? Am I comfortable preaching like this? This is how we see this fruit, this good fruit, right? To bear good fruit, a good healthy tree, a nutritious tree with great strong roots is this fruit of repentance for you and me. But then he says that it does need to come in line with something, that there is this repentance of baptism. And so baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward repentance. And so, yes, it's something that you can see. It's something that you can partake in. Yes, it's baptism where you are immersed underneath and raised up in newness of life, but it's an outward sign that is something that has happened inwardly with you. And so what John is telling us by telling, by bringing this baptism of repentance is he's bringing everything in line. Obviously, something in people's lives and culture are out of line or out of whack. But here he is. He's, it's an alignment campaign. The things that is happening inside you have to be consistent with, with the, the world that you live in. And so both your beliefs and your actions both have to be in line. 
That's what he's trying to tell us this morning. But oftentimes, the things that are in our hearts oftentimes don't make it into our behavior, does it? And so sometimes where our actions are counter to the beliefs deep in our heart. But then the opposite is also true as well. Maybe, just maybe, we are outwardly religious or outwardly putting things, putting on a good face when inwardly it's inconsistent with us. What John wants to do is align us with these both the inward and outward signs. That's why he's coming to us and saying, you have to have both inward repentance and an outward sign for you and me. And so baptism is this outward sign. It is a beautiful sign. It's something that happens around here all the time. We've had it up on that stage and down on this floor, in the cafeteria, in the breezeway, at Dover Gorge, at Grace Meadows, over and over and over. We bring out a, a feeding trough. I know it's gross, but we painted it black to make it a little more trendy. We dunk people in either moving water or still water. We don't care. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. There are name after name after name written on the bottom of um, our baptistry. It's wonderful and it's good. But that is an outward sign of something that's had time that, to permeate the inside of our lives. But both are consistent. On Easter Sunday, we're going to baptize some more people, and it's going to be great, right? And so if you have yet to have this outward sign, we would encourage you to consider that. We already have two candidates, and they're going to go through their ba little baptism class and all that, and it's wonderful and good. But Easter Sunday, August 9th, we're going to get, you know, we're going to dunk some people, so that will be really, really good. So John the Baptist. Oops, there it is. So John speaks in pictures. He's going to give it to us plain as we, you know, as we were wondering. And so what are these two pictures that he wants you and I to come at? See. Like, how can I really understand repentance? First and foremost, he says that there's a demolition, demolition uh, story going on. He tells us a little bit about a road. Now, this is not any road. This is a road that's being prepared. Remember, prepare, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, right? So this is a quote directly from Isaiah 40. This is not just any road. This is a road in preparation for a king, right? Some type of royalty is coming into your town. And so what the civilians do, what the villagers do, is before the arrival of the king or royalty or whomever, they'll go out to the highways and the byways and they'll get it going and making sure that it's all ready for the cart or the whoever to come into the town so there's no distractions. And so the potholes are filled up and the debris, or the debris are cleared and all of those types of things. This is a demolition. This is a road. This is what we're able to do. When I moved into this town in 1992, the only way for me to get from here to Greenville, South Carolina, where my sister was um, in school at Furman University, the only way you could get from here to there is to get drunk and nauseous. That's the only way that you could do, get to, to Greenville, South Carolina. Because there was one tiny two-lane road, right, that would go in and out of the mountains, right? And you would literally get car sick every time you just went into the mountains. You couldn't get to Greenville and feel amazing. It was awful. Well, there was this rumor, there was this story, right, that the government somehow came up with trillions of dollars or something, and there was going to be a highway, an interstate that connects Johnson City to Asheville and kind of go over the mountain. Can you believe it? 
I couldn't believe it, right? And so, in 1995, I think, or ish, you know, this is what Appalachia looked like. There were people, demo, you know, doing demolition work, creating a road. Well, now you and I, we get on I-26, we buzz to Nashville or Asheville in like uh, 55 minutes, give or take, and you don't even think about this, this tiny little road that's still there going through Flag Pond and Telluride and places that you've, you and I have never even seen before. But it once looked like this. It took time and effort and energy, money, foresight, because there was an interstate coming. Transferred trailers are going to be coming through the mountains, climbing and traversing this kind, type of environment. This is one of the two pictures that John wants to give us, is this idea of demolition. Why? Because the low places are brought high. The high places are brought low. The crooked places are now straight. And the rough places are now smooth. He's making a highway. He's making highway 20, I-26 on the way from Johnson City to Asheville. This is John's ministry. This is him being the forerunner of the Messiah himself. And it's painful. And it's destructive. And it's demolition. And yet where would we be without this ministry? Someone pointing at us and offending us to perk up our ears, but more importantly, our hearts, that the kingdom is coming. Have you ever seen a mountain brought low or a valley brought high? A rough place made smooth. The crooked made straight. You and I are grateful for that type of ministry. And this is what John gives us. He gives us a clear path to the Messiah. He gives us a clear path to Jesus himself. And he says, I know you are trusting in yourself. You need to stop that now. And he looks at the religious people and he says, I know that you're trusting in that temple. And people like Caiaphas, he's a snake. You need to stop that now. There's something new. It's the word of God and it's coming to you right now today. Repent, forsake those things and turn your eyes and your heart and your life. Repent and understand that Messiah is coming because your eyes at the end of Isaiah 40, because all people will see, see with their eyes, see the demolition, but see the path that the king, the royal king is coming. This is a story of demolition. And then there's another picture. There's an ax. Missing a knee. Another demolition story of an ax that's laying its sharp blade at the base of its root, chopping it down, throwing it in a fire and disregarding it altogether. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't paint any pictures by accident. John is filled by the spirit and the word of God, every syllable matters. And he's looking to the people that have assembled and he says, some of you are on your way to destruction today. And he just says it. Some of you are on your way to destruction and you may not even know it. So this ax, this blade, 
has the power, leverage to take down a tree. It's coming for the root to create a stump, to fall a tree because it is bearing no fruit. He's looking at an entire generation and says, where is your fruit? What is the good fruit of your life? Tell me where the good produce of your life is. And he looks at us in horrible shame because he, he can't find it. He's an entire generation where he can't find the fruit of repentance. The simple act of denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. He can't find any deniers. Instead, they're all propping themselves up and looking for titles and looking to Rome and Jerusalem for power and prestige. But the word of God is more simple than that. So the ax cuts bad fruit out. And he looks to them and he says something really, really strong. He says, it's really not even the people who are far from Jesus that I'm really worried about. It's actually the people who are more acquainted with God and the Bible. He looks to you, O sons and daughters of Abraham. You, sons and daughters of the 12 tribes of Israel. You, who are in the lineage of David and Abram, Aaron. He looks to you, O people from Judea. He's looking at religious people and he's saying, you are the ones that are in danger. O people who gather in the middle of winter, in East Tennessee, a very culturally Christian people, maybe we too have gotten too lax. And he needs you to hear the story of the kingdom, the predecessor of the kingdom is a demolition act to our lives because that's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to come and sift us like wheat. So man, after a message like this, they simply ask, question. So what in the world should we do? What should we do? Over and over and over, they just keep asking this question, what should we do? First, it starts out wide, and there's what the crowds are like, what should we do? And so the crowds, and so John just walks to them and gently gives them instructions. He then looks to the tax collectors, the people who are the farthest from Jesus that you can be, and he talks to them gently. Then these soldiers, probably Roman soldiers, come up to him like, so what's, what should we do, right? And with each of these, with each of these examples, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, whether he tells you to share, to stop, or to be content, the answer is very simply, stop what you're doing right now and start bearing the fruit of repentance. Your life must change. So in the scriptures, Jesus, his name is Jesus. But his titles are Messiah, Savior, and Lord. What John the baptizer is teaching us this morning is that you can know Jesus by name and history. You can actually have great respect and admiration for him. Yet if there is not a confluence of his life and yours, a melding of his life, his DNA into yours, so that the spirit of God and the word of God is actually bearing fruit in your life, then you're actually farther from him than you believe. 
And what he's saying is that our life needs to be in line with repentance. And it needs to just simply look different. And so maybe you came this morning and now you are leaving. So what should I do? What should I do? And there's two different audiences in here. If you're far from Jesus, if you're far from him this morning, you simply repent. You stop and you start believing in him. It's that simple. I wish that it was more complicated than that, but it's, it's just that simple. It's repent and believe in him. But maybe the religious people have showed up this morning and you're wondering, so how can I walk in this kingdom? These people didn't leave the same. They totally left differently. So how should repentance look like in your life? Well, these are very just everyday normal people that are going out and they're working out their salvation, right? In just a very practical way. Here's what John didn't tell them. I want you to all to join full-time ministry. I want you to all to become preachers. I want you to all to go on the mission field. In fact, he didn't. Soldiers stay soldiers, tax collectors stay collectors tax collectors crowds just keep on gathering but be different stop what you're doing practically walk into your worlds different the spirit of God and the word of God looks totally different than the names that are in this passage in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar who's that guy we don't know but whatever he's Caesaring it's stopped by now The word of God still stands. Pontius Pilate, just a footnote. The only reason we know him is because he's in the Jesus story. He's gone. He's donezo. Because the spirit of God and the word of God, the place that the world needs you and me, is not for us to look like the world, but to look totally contrary to the world. The more we look like John and sound like John, the more people will ask, so what should we do? So in the year 2023, we're walking through the gospel of Luke. What we're trying to like infuse your hearts with are these tools to engage a lost and dying world. This is for you to do two things. The courage of John the Baptist be filled with you this morning. But then two, know that practical repentance means that you don't leave here the same but you go out changed so that people will actually ask, so what in the world should we do? Let's pray. So King Jesus, as we think about bearing good fruit, especially the fruit of repentance, these are hard, hard words for us to hear. And yet they're very comforting at the same time that I just need to die to myself, to turn away from evil and do good, to seek first the kingdom of God. For the gospel that you have is of first importance. It's the power of God and the, and the breadth of salvation. I just pray, Lord, that we would take repentance, this message of the forerunner of Jesus, that we would take it seriously this morning. And so who in here needs to repent? Who has gotten too calloused? Who has gotten too cautious? Who's gotten too cavalier with their lives? Who needs to hear?
the idea that demolition is coming because the royal, the royal chariot of King Jesus who will be the Lord of our lives is coming and he demands much. This morning, Lord, we could end in defeat, but we shouldn't because the question is real. If we have it in our heart to question, Lord, what should we do? That's where you meet us. You meet us because that's where humility is. That's where we can find comfort. So this morning, I pray that you find us a gathering of people eager to ask the hard questions, what should we do next? And fill us with the answers found in our word. In your name we pray.